Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Richard Bell about his book, Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home, published by Simon & Schuster in 2019. Dr. Bell is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, College Park. Stolen tells the true story of how five young black boys were kidnapped from Philadelphia in 1825. Dr. Bell recounts the boys' journey as they were forced to travel south into slavery. Those familiar with popular tales such as Solomon Northup's Twelve Years a Slave or more recent historiographical works like Erica Dunbar's Never Caught will find Dr. Bell's Stolen to be a must-read as he explores how one kidnapping kidnapping was shaped by the larger history of slavery, the interstate slave trade, the law, and a host of other factors. Dr. Bell? Welcome to the program. Derek, thanks for having me. All right. So I guess to get things kicked off, can you just give our listeners a general kind of feel of how you got interested in this project? Oh, geez. Yeah. So this is a dark story. And uh, I came to this subject matter via another dark story. Um, uh, My first book, which was published in 2012, was about suicide in America between the Revolution and the Civil War. And when you're writing a book about uh, suicide and you're working on it for, what, a decade or so, uh, people, friends and colleagues who know you're working on it, whenever they come across an historical suicide in their own research, they send me an email. So every couple of days, I get an email about a suicide in history that I probably wasn't aware of before. Uh, And if I thought it was relevant, I'd look into it. And one day in 2011, as I was wrapping up, the book. I think it was already in production by that point. It was a bit late to be gathering new research. Uh, I got one of these emails from a friend who said, hey, have you heard of Patty Cannon? And I said, who is Patty Cannon? I've never heard of Patty Cannon. Uh, And it turns out that she was a woman who lived on the eastern shore of Maryland near the Delaware line, um, who may or may not have committed suicide while in jail, uh, arrested there on suspicion of murdering um, a fellow slave trader. It turns out she was a uh, slave trader. Uh, so I began to dig into this case, and I realized a couple of things. Uh, number one, that while I'd never heard of her, uh, over on the Eastern Shore, uh, even today, she's relatively well known. Uh, people out there uh, know a good deal about her. If you go to the Museum um, of Eastern Shore History in Seaford, uh, out there, you can find a creepy animatronic, anim- animatronic sort of robot of Patty Cannon rocking back and forth in a rocking chair, um, and the visitors seem delighted by how horrible she is. Um, and the second thing I learned was about her business dealings that she had made uh, her way in the world um, by being a part owner of a family business that trafficked in the illegal kidnapping into slavery of free black adults and children from the Eastern Shore, from Baltimore, from Philadelphia, from wherever free black children and adults could be 
uh, lured. Uh, this was 2011, remember, and uh, I didn't know much about this uh, market for kidnapped free children at that point. Um, I'd read Solomon Northup's account of being an adult kidnapped into slavery uh, back in graduate school a long time ago, but the uh, big movie uh, starring Brad Pitt, uh, Chiwet Leggio for um, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, uh, Michael Fassbender, and so on, hadn't come out yet. I think it came out in 2012. Um, so this idea that alongside the legal domestic slave trade, that there was another illegal trade of kidnapped free black adults and children into slavery wasn't something I'd spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, but being confronted with the end-of-life decisions of one of these um, uh, kidnappers, Patty Cannon, sent me down a research rabbit hole. And I started working um, on her full-time. Uh, and uh, I originally conceived the book, which is now stolen, as a biography of Patty Cannon. Uh, and in the course of, what, eight years of research and writing, that book project transformed so that um, the book we have now, Stolen, is a micro-history focused on a particular kidnapping episode in which Cannon is involved, but she's a fairly minor player. Uh, it's the kidnapping of five free black boys from the streets of Philadelphia in August 1825 by some of Paddy Cannon's operatives, um, and their journey into slavery in the Deep South in Mississippi and Alabama, and the entirely unexpected series of events uh, that follows uh, that ordeal. And kind of going off of that, you know, you've given us an idea of like who's kind of involved in this kind of, you know, enterprise. Um, and you call this uh, in you call this the reverse underground railroad, something that we talk about sometimes in history. And so for listeners and readers, potential readers who might not be as familiar with this, what is the reverse underground railroad? And besides, you know, this one person that you're talking about, what's the kind of general, you know, identity of people who are participating in it that you found? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So you're right. So this, this term reverse underground railroad, um, this is a term which I am not the first person to coin or come up with. If you Google it, you'll find lots of hits for it on the internet. Um, but it's not a term that's in wide usage, or at least not yet. Uh, and I'm using it to refer to um, the traffic, the market for um, free black people who can be kidnapped into slavery. So we could say that Solomon Northup was a coerced rider on the reverse underground railroad. We could say that the five boys at the heart of my book were coerced riders on this reverse underground uh, railroad. These are free black people, um, sometimes adults, though more usually children, uh, abducted um, by professional human traffickers, often trafficked long distances from places like Philadelphia um, to places like Mississippi, usually on foot, by the way, uh, in what we call coffles or um, caravans of uh, marching shackled human beings and uh, tried um, with the intent that uh, traders, traffickers can sell them off um, to planters setting up in the new cotton kingdom in places like Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana in the first six decades of the 19th century to pass them off as legally traded 
slaves, uh, either to planters who don't know better or to planters more likely who do not care the exact origin and legal status of the people they're buying um, in the Deep South. So one of the many arguments I'm making in Stolen, though Stolen is driven by a narrative, by a story, one of the many arguments I'm making is that this criminal traffic, this black market in black people was enormous. Um, that by my estimates, and they have to be estimates because we're talking about unlawful criminal activity that doesn't always leave traces. By my estimates, we're talking about hundreds of people, uh, adults and more normally children, kidnapped into slavery um, uh, in almost every year in the six decades between uh, 1800 and the outbreak of the um, Civil War with a particular density of abductions um, after the end of the War of 1812 and the 1820s and the 1830s. So uh, cumulatively, we're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands, perhaps, of people uh, kidnapped into slavery um, in the course of this uh, half century. And the people doing the kidnapping, um, we should not think of these people as being um, uh, particularly elite they were usually people from poor uh, middling backgrounds who were opportunists, who were hawks, who were mercenaries. Uh, most of them were, were white, obviously, um, these kidnappers, I mean, um, though some of the larger gangs, and I'm writing in Stolen about the largest gang and most fearsome gang in the United States, the gang led by Patty Cannon and her son-in-law, Joseph Johnson. This particular gang, one of its distinctive features was it would hire a couple of uh, down-on-their-luck um, African-American uh, men to actually be their frontline operatives, their frontline agents, the people who sidle up to free black boys um, down by the dock in Philadelphia in 1825 and offer them a quarter, uh, a quarter dollar for coming with them uh, a few blocks out of town to help them unload some boxes from a schooner tied up um, near the banks of the Delaware um, River. So it's a particularly confusing, confounding, unsettling uh, story about the way uh, these agents of the slave power drive a wedge uh, between different members of the African-American community. And when thinking about just the sheer scale of what's going on here, you know, we kind of come to the conclusion that for free black people, particularly in the North, you know, the fear of kidnapping is something that they're always kind of, it's always in their mind. Um, and one thing that I, that comes to mind when you always have that in the back of your mind is that, okay, if this happens, this is where I have to turn. This is what I have to do. And so in your research, where did you find that black family members who have had someone who was kidnapped, where did they turn? What sort of kind of recourses did they have? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question because, of course, members of the free black community in cities like Philadelphia, and uh, your listeners may know that Philadelphia has one of the largest and certainly the most dynamic free black communities in the early United States by the 1820s with several thousand people. Um, uh, members of the free black community in cities like Philadelphia uh, are well aware that these abductions, these predations, these kidnappings are going on because they've been going on. Uh, for years. Um, so we know that parents are giving their children um, the 19th century equivalent of the talk. 
um, to warn them about how to handle themselves when they're out in the world, how to handle themselves around um, strangers, people that make them offers which seem too good to be true. So parents are doing all they can to try to uh, inoculate and protect their children from these predations, but their parents still have to work and go out every day and earn money, and they can't be supervising their children uh, 24-7. Many of the children themselves, of course, uh, some, some are in school, uh, if they're fortunate, the places in schools for black children are few and far between. Uh, some more are in employment and they have to walk to work every day. Some of the boys in my story, two of the five boys are chimney sweeps, uh, for instance. Um, that still leaves a lot of opportunity, unfortunately. And one of the, um, I hope, big take-homes of the first chapters of this book, Stolen, is that the freedom of African-American people, whether they be adults or children, um, the freedom of um, lawfully free people in states like Pennsylvania is exceedingly tenuous. It's fragile. Uh, Erica Dunbar, uh, her first book was called Fragile Freedom, uh, and it's about the free black community in Philadelphia. And that idea that you one can be legally free, but that freedom can be constantly in the balance, can be constantly subjected to um, discrimination in the housing market, discrimination in the labor market, but also snatched away by kidnappers who cross into Pennsylvania from places like Maryland uh, and Delaware was achingly apparent to every member of the free black community. So when kidnappings occurred, um, Derek, there were very limited options um, for people involved. Um, the victims themselves, of course, um, could could and did try to resist their kidnapping, kicking and screaming, uh, yelling and biting, anything they could do to draw attention uh, to the fact that they're being abducted. Um, uh, but in many cases, that was uh, insufficient to draw um, attention quickly. When parents realize their children have disappeared and conclude that kidnapping rather than truancy or staying at a friend's house or running away from home is the cause, um, parents also have limited um, options. The African-American community does not have much political capital uh, in cities like Philadelphia in the 19th uh, century. Uh, they are, as I've said, the victims of uh, racial discrimination in the housing market, the labor market, and in other spheres. They do not have many political allies uh, in the state legislature, in city government, uh, the police, the constables don't make much time for them. In fact, they're more willing to turn a blind eye sometimes when kidnappers strike. So uh, what we do find is that uh, black mothers and fathers, when this happens to their child, will uh, try to uh, make a beeline for the nearest member of the one anti-slavery society in town. It's called the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, or the PAS. Uh, its officers, the members of its acting committee, uh, were widely known um, as the only likely allies among people of influence in Philadelphia that black parents could turn to. And so we have story after story in the PAS case files of um, a white lawyer, a white Quaker, a white merchant who was a member of the acting committee of the PAS uh, trying to enjoy their dinner when there's a knock on the door. And uh, it's a black person, often a mother, uh, in tears and distraught, um, uh, um, 
doing everything they can to get this person to uh, ignore their dinner and come with them down to the docks and do something uh, to try to uh, initiate an investigation, start a rescue, some sort of interception uh, to get their child, their son or daughter back who might have disappeared two hours ago, three hours ago. And one of the things that I found most interesting about your book was your discussion of, at least in this particular case and with this, you know, particular gang that you said is, you know, sort of the biggest, most organized gang out there, that the region in which they operate in is particularly advantageous for them. And so when we're thinking about that, um, what sort of uh, factors made this region of the country easier to operate in as uh, an illicit slave trader? Yeah, there's a few uh, answers to that. I'll try and run through them uh, uh, pretty quick. Uh, So we're talking here about um, Eastern Pennsylvania, that my five boys go missing from the streets of Philadelphia, and uh, the kidnappers who abduct them take them first to the eastern shore of Maryland near the Delaware line, so the Delmarva Peninsula more broadly. And uh, they warehouse them there for about a, uh, a week, I think it is, uh, before then shipping them out across the Chesapeake Bay to Virginia and then marching them across um, the continent towards Mississippi and Alabama. But it's striking that they try to rush them out of Pennsylvania and into Maryland and Delaware as quickly as possible. Uh, as your listeners may know, by 1825, um, uh, Slavery in Pennsylvania is on its very, very last uh, legs. There's been um, a gradual abolition act passed in Pennsylvania back in 1780, which over the course of 20, 30, 40 years did exactly what it promised, which is gradually abolish slavery in Pennsylvania. Um, It literally took decades, but it did get the job uh, done. So by 1825, Pennsylvania is effectively a free state, uh, which is why uh, the city of Philadelphia is home to such a large and dynamic uh, free black population. But if we go just a couple of dozen miles uh, south of Pennsylvania, then we find ourselves in Maryland, we find ourselves in Delaware, two uh, slave states where there have, there have not been significant anti-slavery uh, acts of legislation. Um, and slavery is still very much a going concern. Um, Plantation owners in those two states uh, have long since made the transition away from tobacco cultivation towards the cultivation of um, wheat and corn and other cereals, which are far less labor-intensive but still require a slave labor force in their minds. So on the eastern shore, this is an agricultural um, a settlement where um, uh, the uh, elite white members of society are still slaveholders, where there's still a significant enslaved um, population, which is to say it's the sort of place, it's the sort of climate um, where um, a kidnapping gang like the Cannon Johnson gang can set up its headquarters and feel relatively safe, relatively protected, protected by a legal regime by a political elite, which is not terribly interested in um, uh, pursuing um, allegations of uh, kidnapping against its own white uh, residents. So this gang uses the Delmarva Peninsula um, for a literal and figurative safe house um, and warehouse 
for those uh, free black adults and more likely children that they kidnap out of Philadelphia, across the freedom line, across the color line, into the slave states uh, before they figure out what to do with them or where to sell them. And when we're talking about, you know, this whole process of the interstate slave trade, um, both the sort of the legal slave trade that goes on mostly in the South, but then there's also this illicit slave trade that you're speaking of, what sort of factors led to uh, an increase in this movement and this trading that you uh, are able to see. And then when we're talking about the actual journey south that these boys take and that, you know, hundreds of thousands of other uh, enslaved black people and free black people um, as well are taking, what is that journey like? Yeah, so you might have to remind me of that second question because I can only keep one question in my head at a time. But uh, let's take that first question uh, you asked about what is new um, about uh, all this in the 19th century. Uh, And two things are new. Two things, I think, explain the rise of the large and legal domestic slave trade and the simultaneous rise of the smaller uh, and wholly illegal um, uh, reverse underground railroad. Uh, The first is uh, an act of law passed um, in 1806 that goes into effect on January the 1st, 1808, whereby the Jefferson administration uh, outlaws the further legal importation of enslaved people from outside the United States. So after 1808, it's no longer legal or lawful to bring in enslaved people directly from Africa or via um, the Caribbean. We could say this is the end of the transatlantic slave trade so far as it concerns the United States, though smuggling, as you might imagine, does continue. Um, so that change in the law, which occurs for many reasons, um, has the effect that if you want to grow the enslaved population um, in the United States overall, or more likely, if you want to uh, move to a um, a newly established state like Mississippi and Alabama, and you want to bring slaves with you or buy slaves, then you have to look for um, uh, sources within the United uh, States. So as we see the Louisiana Purchase, as we see various uh, treaties with Indians and the Spanish um, along the southern border, we see the carving out of new territories and eventually new states um, which fill with American, uh, with white American settlers, many of whom decide they want to plant sugar or cotton there. And again, I'm thinking about the states around the Gulf South when I say this. Um, and those white uh, settlers decide that if they're going to plant sugar, if they're going to plant South, uh, if they're going to plant cotton, excuse me, uh, then they're going to need large numbers of enslaved people to do that. They can no longer buy enslaved people from overseas, so they need to buy them from suppliers within the United States. Um, so that is why we see after 1808, um, a huge reorganization of the American slave market um, to funnel uh, massive numbers of enslaved people from upper south slave states like Delaware, like Maryland, like Virginia, um, who planters there regard as um, unprofitable or surplus um, to masters setting up in the new cotton kingdom uh, in the deep south. Uh, So this is the rise of the domestic slave trade, which is, again, it's wholly legal. Um, uh, Planters in the upper south sell 
uh, slaves. They no longer want to uh, pay to care for to slave traders. The slave traders transfer them, transport them either over land or by sea or by river and occasionally by rail um, to places like Natchez, Mobile, um, New Orleans, etc., um, where those enslaved uh, folks are sold to planters setting up in the cotton uh, kingdom. And uh, we see criminal traffickers take advantage of that obviously massive demand for uh, enslaved laborers in the Deep South. Criminal traffickers like Paddy Cannon and Joseph Johnson um, believe that there is sufficient demand that certain planters won't ask too many questions about where the enslaved laborers their gang presents them with are from, uh, or that if they uh, are cognizant um, of the illicit way in which enslaved laborers were um, abducted into slavery, that if uh, gang members give planters a sufficient discount, they will buy them anyway. And then what does this sort of journey look like for enslaved people and the free black people who are involved? So so this is an important question. Um, And historically, in terms of scholarship, um, it's been quite difficult to gain access to that experience. Um, Whether we're talking about the experience of legally traded slaves from Virginia to Mississippi or uh, or kidnapped uh, uh, children like the five boys I write about in Stolen uh, and what their experience is marching across, trudging across, walking across this great country were like, um, we have precious few accounts written by people who made that um, journey. And so historians who've tackled the domestic slave trade, um, and there are several, um, have often focused on the legal dimensions uh, of it, different laws, uh, different economic changes, uh, or what we can say about the aggregate experiences rather than boring down um, to recover individual uh, experiences. And one of the things I try to do in Stolen uh, is to push that a little bit, to try to recover over the course of two chapters at the heart of the book, what these five boys' experience was like walking from um, eastern Virginia when they crossed the Chesapeake Bay from the eastern shore, from eastern Virginia, down first to Alabama and then to Mississippi. This is a monstrous distance. And the older boys um, did this journey on foot. Um, I think that's about 2 million steps. I think it took several months, four months um, around there. Uh, and so we can make guesses about roughly how far they walked um, every day. Uh, we know from travelers' accounts who saw other slave coffles on the road and from a few rare business records kept by legal traders what sort of provisions for food, and clothing and shelter and transportation, um, coffles like this one um, would have um, been provided with by the captors. We uh, know something about the psychological dimensions of this journey as well, because this was an ordeal like nothing these free boys had ever experienced before, um, uh, Obviously, so in the book, I try to uh, reconstruct that in as much detail uh, as I can to make readers understand, help readers understand uh, that for five uh, free black boys from Philadelphia, um, some of whom may not have seen the ocean before or set foot outside of 
Pennsylvania or even Philadelphia uh, before. This was a incredibly long, incredibly um, taxing, atomizing, and alienating uh, experience, which probably left them with a lot of um, uh, unprocessed uh, trauma um, to uh, to live with subsequently. And, you know, our listeners will probably pick up by now that we're not talking a lot about the details of this particular journey. And that's because I want all of y'all to go out and actually buy and read this book. However, you know, some of the things that you talk about in here are just too good not to uh, ask you about. And so one of the things that I found particularly interesting is how uh, one instance where there's an attempt to run away. And this happens within Choctaw country. And one of the things I find interesting is the sort of reception that enslaved, in this case, free black um, fugitives, um, fugitive slaves receive within Choctaw country. And so can you speak a little bit about, you know, how do Native Americans play into this story and what sort of role and kind of maybe even conundrum are they placed in in their kind of particular places within the South? Yes, thank you. So just to be clear, yes, the five boys who were kidnapped into slavery in August 1825 do not go quietly. They resist at various points uh, in this story. And this story is structured around, built out uh, of their attempts to resist their uh, kidnapping and enslavement. And um, one of the most uh, important instances of that is the one you just referred to when one of the five boys, his name is Sam, uh, he's about 15 years old, uh, uh, he runs away from the Koffel and from his captors uh, in Alabama, which is uh, touching Choctaw country, the territory controlled and occupied by the Choctaw um, Indians. And uh, we don't know how much he knew or didn't know or guessed or surmised about whether uh, Choctaw Indians would be a safe harbor, receptive to a slave fugitive. Um, but we, uh, we can know that he was one of hundreds of enslaved people uh, on these journeys through the Lower South who did try to run to Native American groups for safety and protection in the first uh, several decades of the 19th century. Uh, and scholars like Natalie Joy have pointed out that um, in the early um, decades after the American Revolution, say from about 1780 to about 1810, um, more often than not, uh, Native American groups were likely to give protection and harbor and comfort um, and material aid to runaway uh, slaves. Um, we could regard them as sort of being anti-slavery allies if we wanted to push it in that um, direction. But as I write in the book, things had changed by 1825. Uh, the number of white American settlers pushing onto, Amer onto Native American land in this area was continuing um, to grow. Uh, treaties were being discarded by these uh, and ignored by these white settlers. Uh, there was a sense among the Choctaws and other Southern Indian groups like them that they were living under siege. And for better or worse, the response, the political response that the Choctaws come up with is what I characterize as, um, as appeasement, uh, which is to uh, try to figure out how to coexist with swarming white um, uh, settlers, to how to get into the good graces of state legislatures in places like Alabama and the federal legislature in uh, Washington. So we see a program of reforms 
amongst the uh, Choctaws, which sees them try to live in more explicitly European-American um, ways. We see changes to their agriculture to try to imitate American land use practice, white American land use practices. Uh, we see changes uh, to their anti-slavery position where it becomes more and more likely that uh, a Choctaw warrior, when confronted in the woods with a runaway slave, will not take them in, but will march them back to where they came from and claim a reward. And unfortunately, this is the story um, of what happens when Sam uh, runs into Choctaw country uh, in November 1825. A Choctaw warrior meets him in the woods and instead of giving him sanctuary, marches him back to the coffle captors from which he tried to escape uh, and they beat him uh, within an inch of his life. And, you know, once we get past the coffle, once these boys are finally sold in the South, um, you point out something that is very unlikely to happen, um, but nonetheless does happen in this case, where the boys uh, try and tell the people who are buying them that they're free, which is not uncommon. But what is slightly uncommon, as you point out, is that they're actually listened to. And so Basically, as you say, you know, there's this effort to actually return the boys. And so um, why would that happen? You know, as you as you mentioned earlier, most of the people who would be buying from an illicit traders just don't care whether or not the people are actually free or legally enslaved. And so why would some white Southerners actually try and return um these boys and actually not want to keep free and free people as enslaved people. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't want to say too much about the specific characters or events in the book at this point in the story, because what does happen is so unusual and um, unexpected. I want readers to discover that for themselves. But I'll talk in general terms and say that, of course, um, the very prosperity of um, operators of the reverse underground railroad, the very business plan of kidnappers like Patty Cannon, Joe Johnson, and other members of the gang, uh, relies on the expectation that there will be plenty of buyers in the Deep South who won't know or much more likely won't care um, that the um, people they're being offered to buy are in fact legally free um, people from uh, Philadelphia or places uh, like it. That's how the system is supposed to work. So when it doesn't work like that, it's probably because of the confluence of an unusual set of circumstances and personalities and characters. We've got to recognize, of course, um, the role that in that uh, the victims of this human trafficking network play in drawing attention to their illegal captivity. Um, we see time and again that um, people kidnapped uh, into the reverse Underground Railroad uh, speak up as often as they can at any opportunity they, they can get to tell um, owners, buyers, traders, bystanders, um, tavern keepers they meet along the way that they are free, that, they, that they've been kidnapped, that they must be returned, that this is wrong. Um, and so without that... Um, activism, because that's what it is, uh, then no one would ever shake loose of the uh, reverse underground railroad. 
Um, but we might also think in general terms about why some white Southerners might not want to be seen to be actively participating or condoning or endorsing the trade in kidnapped free children. Um, the domestic slave trade, its, its larger legal equivalent, is starting to come under significant political attack by anti-slavery activists in northern cities by the 1820s. Uh, and uh, boosters or defenders of the legal and lawful domestic slave trade uh, are trying to um, protect its reputation as best they can, trying to argue that it is clean, that conditions are good, that it is economically necessary, that families are never, never, never separated, which of course is a lie. Um, and so um, the stain and stink caused by the apparent association between the legal domestic slave trade and the kidnapping traffic of free black children is a huge PR problem for slave owners generally. Uh, it's also a moral problem, uh, obviously, uh, as well. And arguably, it's a legal problem in some southern jurisdictions as well, which all have anti-kidnapping laws on the books. Um, so you might see a confluence of circumstances where certain slavery stakeholders might try and draw a line between the lawful and legal domestic slave trade, which they want to protect, uh, and the illegal and immoral and abhorrent trade in kidnapped children, which they see as um, staining uh, the larger traffic they want to protect. And, you know, you were just mentioning, you know, the how the abolitionist and anti-slavery movement is picking up during this time and, you know, how Southerners might try and, you know, do this only to kind of protect the institution of slavery as a whole. And so for thinking about both of those things and uh, happening together and everything like that, how does this uh, situation that, you know, this kidnapping and then the eventual you know, returning of these boys to the North, how does that all play out uh, in the abolitionist movement? How, how does the movement kind of get influenced by this particular uh, instance? Yeah. So again, I don't want to, I want to be a little bit purposefully vague and I apologize for, uh, for that. Um, but I, I will say that uh, this particular case proves to be incredibly, um, to use a word I hate, uh, impactful, um, by which I, I mean, um, it is. It receives a lot of press coverage in Philadelphia when it happens. The absence, the disappearance of these five boys. That's in part due to the activism of their parents and loved ones that they've been snatched away from. It's in part due to the direct involvement of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the PAS, and it's in part due to the eventual involvement of the mayor of Philadelphia, who, unlike many other mayors of Philadelphia before and since, um, was far more sensitive to the um, to the duty to protect the free black um, residents of his city. So the case draws a lot of attention, um, and it is such is regarded as such an outrage in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania more broadly that it it triggers a legal change. It triggers a new set of anti-kidnapping laws which go into effect uh, in 1826, a year uh, later. Those kidnapping laws um, are eventually challenged in the Supreme Court of the United States in 1842 in a case called Prigg 
versus um, Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, in a series of responses to that uh, case, we end up with the um, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and the Compromise of 1850, which I think most historians would tell you is perhaps the most significant political development on the march to civil war. Uh, now, I am not here to tell you that uh, my uh, the kidnapping case I write about causes the civil war, that it would be massive hyperbole, um, but there's a series of connections which get us from this kidnapping to one law, to one Supreme Court case, to the Compromise of 1850, um, which I want readers to understand. I want readers to understand how the furore, the furore around kidnapping and around kidnapping, this kidnapping in particular, does cause a series of reactions, uh, political, um, legal, and activist, which shake the United States uh, in different ways. I'd also say one more thing, which is that within the anti-slavery movement, which, as you pointed out, is, is growing and rising and changing and becoming bolder uh, and more extreme, in the 1820s and 1830s and 1840s, um, the kidnapping of free black children into slavery becomes something of a cause uh, celebre, something of a focus and fixation for white and black uh, activists to rally around, to point at and say, hey, um, you white northerners who think just because you've abolished slavery in Massachusetts, in uh, Connecticut, in New York, in Pennsylvania, that you guys are now blameless and that your job is done. No, wake up. Black people are still being stolen from under your noses. Black families are being forcibly separated. Uh, slave traffickers are coming into our free states from slave states like Maryland and Delaware and further south and making a mockery of our personal liberty laws designed to protect the, li the, the legal liberty of uh, free African-Americans from uh, seizure. Get off your couches and do something. So in their um, moral suasion output, in their anti-slavery propaganda, which is pumping out of anti-slavery presses at ever more impressive um, restless rates by the 1830s and 40s, uh, the focus on the kidnapping of free black people and of free black children most especially is completely unmistakable. And the figure of the suffering black child separated forcibly from its mother becomes arguably the defining trope of the anti-slavery movement by the 1840s. So if you're looking for the origins of that focus, um, that fetish fetishization uh, of the trope of the suffering black child, um, then I would argue that um, the kidnapping case, which causes such a stir in Philadelphia in 1825, is a significant point of origin for that trajectory. And so before we let you go, you know, we have this great book in front of us. Once again, you know, it's stolen five free boys kidnapped into slavery and their astonishing journey home. And with any luck, this podcast will be going up either the day of or very shortly after it is published, which it will be October 15th. And, you know, our listeners, you know, as we've said before to y'all, we're kind of being a little bit tongue in cheek here. We don't want to give you all the details. Go out and read the book, buy the book. And it's Honestly, as the title says, an astonishing tale of what's going on. I guarantee you learning the history behind what's going on right now is not going to give you all of what's going on in the book, the actual story. And so we have this book in front of us right now. 
what can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on next? And obviously, it's completely okay to say nothing. I just wrote a book. <laughs> um, I don't know what I want to do right now. Uh, I would say that, first of all, that uh, I have just written a book and I'm spending a lot of time uh, talking with public audiences around the country uh, about this story and why it matters, because it does matter. This is an important story. Uh, and it resonates, I think. I hope it resonates with the times we're living through uh, now where children still get ripped away from their parents uh, brutally and unexpectedly, where people who don't have their papers, people who are poor, people who are undocumented, people of color still have to fear that the freedom they have is uh, desperately fragile. Um, so I hope to be talking about this for a while because it's important. Uh, but I'm also at work on two other projects. Um, one is a, a large-scale history of the railroads in uh, as they relate to slavery and anti-slavery, uh, how the railroads spread American slavery in the 1840s and 1850s, and how anti-slavery activists and fugitives use the railroad, not the figurative, metaphorical underground railroad, but the actual um, uh, uh, railroads that latticed this country together by the 1840s and 50s. So I'm starting to work on that big project, and I'm also starting to work on a much smaller, narrower, human-scale uh, project about someone called Elizabeth Jennings, uh, who in 1854 um, refused to um, follow the uh, segregated um, transportation policies of how to get onto a tram or a trolley uh, in New York. And like Rosa Parks, a century later, um, refused to be told where she could and could not uh, sit. And her protest, a political protest, uh, in 1850s New York uh, led to a larger attempt to try to desegregate public transportation uh, in that city. And I'd like to uh, really delve into that story in much greater depth than historians have so far been able to do. Well, I'm sure once those are done, we'll probably have you right back onto the program to speak about those. But in the meantime, uh, Dr. Bell, thank you very much for coming on the program today. Derek, thanks so much. <laughs> 